0: you're listening to the perks of being a book lover a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years
1: I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, hell's bells, we could not be more different. I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, and scared to death when Amy says she has an idea, because that usually spells trouble and work for me.
0: Okay, but I am an ideas person. I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you're a book lover, and even maybe if you aren't. I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict. I like to collect friends, apparently, and I (laughs) treat a good thrift store like it's a national treasure.
1: Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish topics, like... Authors in the News... Recent book-to-film adaptations. Weird stuff we've Googled while reading. And our TBR count.
0: We're glad you're here. Our guest this week, Ritu Mukherjee, is a busy full-time physician and a mother of three, but she managed to find time to write her first novel, a recently published historical fiction mystery titled Murder by Degrees, about a female physician in late 19th century Philadelphia. She was inspired by her love of the mystery genre, as well as her experience living in Philadelphia while getting her medical degree, where she would often visit places where female doctors had paved the way for other women to follow.
1: We chat with Ritu about why physicians can make good detectives, and she shares some of her favorite mystery series and the recipe for her favorite Thanksgiving side dish that's been prepared in her family for over 30 years. But first,
0: when this airs, Thanksgiving will be tomorrow, just in time for y'all to get the ingredients for
1: Ritu's uh, <laughs> Thanksgiving side dish. Do you all have big plans for Thanksgiving, Carrie? We do not. One of our little family is not going to be here, Nora's going to be in Florida doing Florida things, Universal Studios, and oh, I, don't be, I don't know what else. So fine. she won't be here. So that'll be a little bit weird. That'll be the first time, I think, that The five of us haven't been together. But we go to my mother-in-law's and eat too much. And it's going to be a little bit different from what we normally do.
0: Uh, Yeah, ours as well. You know, for years and years, my family would come in. Um, We'd have my husband's family over, they live in town, and I would make this big Thanksgiving dinner. And I will admit, even though I like to cook, I do not like to prepare Thanksgiving dinner. It's a whole lot of work with food that I'm not crazy about, that takes everybody about 20 minutes to eat, and then it's just a lot of cleanup. So Mm -hmm. I don't love that part. I like seeing the people, but my son who lives in Virginia will not be here for Thanksgiving. And so we are actually going to go over to my husband's cousin's house, who has a big potluck Thanksgiving. And that's where we're going to spend Thanksgiving. But I'm excited because I don't have to make anything but a side dish or maybe a pie. So I'm excited about that. But my son in Virginia is coming back on the Monday after Thanksgiving. He's going to prepare a big Thanksgiving dinner for us on Tuesday. That should be interesting. He says he's excited to do it. I am worried for the state of my kitchen, but (laughs) it should be delicious. So I have something to report. Yes. After you gave me such a hard time about my shoes.
1: Actually, I I didn't give you nearly as hard of a time about your shoes as your husband did.
0: Well, that's true. He hates all my shoes. I got a huge box and I got rid of probably 12 pairs of shoes. I'm proud of you. How Uh, many do you have left? I don't know. I'm afraid to say. I don't know. I'd have to count them. I had way too many. I will admit. I, I had a problem. But just the other day. When we went to an event, you told me Mm -hmm. what cute shoes I had. And I said, see?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, they are cute. But for me, just because somebody says that that something I have is cute doesn't mean I need to go get like 17 more of them.
0: Oh, no. For me, I'm like, oh, man, that purchase was totally worth it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We right. are so completely different. I know. Well, so speaking of when I did compliment your shoes, we did something social and fun. Yeah. Saturday night, we went to Third Turn Brewery, which the there's two locations, and one of them is I could ride my bike to the brewery from my house. But we went out to dinner first, and then we went over to the brewery, and they were having Noir at the bar. It was an event
0: where nine crime noir writers from five different states converged to do a reading at the Bourbon Bar portion of Third Turn Brewery. Uh, it was organized by a crime writer named Wesley Brown. This one was sponsored by Book Social 502, which is this new book event event. Thing. <laughs> Thing. I don't know what to call it yet. That's been started by the horror author J.H. Markert, who lives here in Louisville. So it was super fun. The lineup was phenomenal. The really big name who was there was S.A. Cosby, who is the author of several southern noir crime novels, such as Blacktop Wasteland. Uh, razor blade tears he has a new one that just came out called all the sinners bleed right and uh, he was phenomenal he was the last to read actually but his voice oh my goodness I don't know if he does his own audiobooks but it is just perfect Uh, and his voice is just it's like this deep baritone it's just great what I liked about the venue was that it felt like a. if you've ever gone to a small venue where a band has played and it feels sort of intimate, kind of close to whoever's performing. And it just has a totally different feel than like a large auditorium. You feel much freer to like go up and talk to the author. And <laughs> Except you. Except for I was too nervous. <laughs> I, I wanted to go talk to S.A. Cosby and I was just too nervous to do it. But, you know, I hope that they do more fun events there. I know James Markert is planning more events and I'm all for it. I thought it was great. And Carmichael's yep. was there to sell books. Uh, what else? Oh, and I did something yesterday that was, it was a big surprise to me. A dear friend of mine asked me to go see an art exhibit with her. It was the last day of this exhibit. It was at a little art gallery I had never heard of called the Headley Whitney Museum, which is sort of in horse country. It's between... Louisville and Lexington, It's on the grounds of the former home of a well-known jewelry designer named George Headley III. I think that he must have, in his will, said he wanted his home place to be turned into a museum to highlight art. And so it has been, and it was a cute little museum. We went there to see the exhibit of the late Kentucky artist and poet, Henry Faulkner. I had never heard of Henry Faulkner. Go Google his art. It's very vibrant, colorful, whimsical. He was a little bit eccentric. He had a pet goat named Alice that he put in lots of his
1: paintings. Looking and I see there's several with cats.
0: Yes, there are a lot of animals in his paintings. They're just super interesting. It's really all about the color. And I just loved his artwork. And then with some of them, they would pair it with some of his poetry And his poetry was quite good. He spent time in Kentucky, but also in New York and in Key West. I just felt like I discovered a whole new world going to that exhibit yesterday. Makes me want to be artistic. You know, you look at these beautiful things and you think, I want to be able to do that, but we don't all have that talent. But I do believe that everybody has some kind of creative ability. It may not be painting or drawing, but it could be something else, you know.
1: You know, I was so dumb in high school that I didn't sign up for an art class because in my head, I was like, well, I'm not good at art, so I can't take art. And now I think back about that and I'm like, that was so stupid. That's the reason you take an art class is yeah. to learn about art. Well, yeah, and I-
0: like I said, not all art is painting. You know, there's other types of artistic things like photography. Or, you know, I was in my 40s when I decided to take a pottery class, and I loved that. And, I mean, I wasn't a professional potter, but I think some of the pieces I did were pretty good, Mm -hmm. and they were art to me, you know? So we have ideas in our head about what we're good or not good at. And sometimes there's some innate talent, but sometimes you just have to put some work into something and practice and do it consistently, so...
1: It was like well, a, a I have really started great... following that museum now. So yeah. I'm following them on Instagram so that next time I may be in the know and hear about a great exhibit like this. So, mm-hmm. Speaking of multi-talented you know, people who, who've who tapped into their creative side, Ritu is one of those people. I mean, full-time physician. She is a well-rounded individual who can do it all. So uh, let's listen to our interview with Ritu Mukherjee. We are delighted to have Ritu Mukherjee here with us to discuss her debut novel, Murder by Degrees. So Ritu, thanks for joining us on this Saturday.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here.
1: So you're a working physician, and you wrote your novel, Murder by Degrees, before and after work. And the novel is set in 19th century Philadelphia, and the protagonist is Dr. Lydia Weston, and she begins investigating the disappearance of her young female patient. So we're always curious when we talk to authors, where did the idea for this novel come from?
2: Yes, I think one of the main inspirations for the novel was the time that I lived in Philadelphia as a medical student. So I lived in the city for about five years. I was a student at Jefferson Medical College. Uh, It's since been renamed to Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. Quite a a mouthful, but I lived there for five years. And, you know, I had grown up in California. And, you know, when I arrived in the city, I always knew of it as this very historic place. You know, Independence Square, Liberty Bell, signing of the Declaration of Independence. But what I really discovered was how much of the history of American medicine is there. And you know, it's just an incredibly atmospheric street. You walk down those narrow cobblestone alleys, just feel like the layers of history are kind of embedded into modern life right there. And so, you know, a lot of my free time I would spend walking around, exploring the city. It's really the kind of city that's. So ideal for a history buff like me. I mean, you literally cannot walk more than a block without encountering one of those wonderful, you know, blue historical plaques. And so I, you know, visited places like the Mutter Museum or the College of Physicians. It has a historic medical library and reading room, a place called the Benjamin Rush Physic Garden. It's a medicinal plant garden. And then I lived at 9th and Pine Street. It It was about a block from Pennsylvania Hospital, which is actually, you know, one of the scenes in the book. Is set there. That's the nation's first public hospital. The foundation stone has an inscription from Benjamin Franklin, and there's this great old surgical amphitheater that you could tour. Where there are kind of these wooden stalls lined up to the ceiling, and you look down into the pit where the you know the surgeon would operate. And there's a big window, you know, in the ceiling where natural light would come in, and the surgeons Mm -hmm. had to operate like between eleven and two to capture the natural light to, to operate by. And so, you know, all of these influences, I think, simmered in my mind for a long time. But it was only years later, after I left, when I was thinking about writing a mystery novel featuring a woman doctor that I learned of the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. And that was when I really knew I had just the perfect setting for the book.
1: But I'm curious whether Lydia Weston, was she modeled on anybody? Or was she just the accumulation of maybe reading about different women of the time? You know, she
2: definitely is a fictional composite of a lot of the extraordinary pioneering women doctors that I learned about in the course of my research. So, you know, in order to write a story like this, and I love to read historical fiction myself, so it was very important to me to, like, create the world for the characters. And before I even had a character, before I even had a story or a storyline, I really was sort of carefully constructing this World, and so one was the world of 1875 Philadelphia, and the other was this medical world. So I really dove headfirst into uh, doing research on the lives of these uh, real-life women physicians, who were students, who were faculty, who were professors. And one of the first people I I discovered and what really started me on this path was a physician named Dr. Anne Preston, and she became well known because in 1866 she became dean of the medical college. And that was the first time in the United States, a woman physician was dean of an American medical school. And she just had this fascinating life story. She had grown up in a very progressive Quaker family, very involved in suffrage, abolition, temperance movements. She had been a children's book author before she decided to study medicine (laughs) at the age of 38. And I found that so modern and so fascinating. You know, when I was a medical Student, The idea of the, quote, non-traditional medical student, someone who had life experience and who came to medicine later was just kind of gaining traction. And here was someone more than 150 years ago, you know, doing this. And then you know, I started learning about more of these fascinating women. And, you know, some grew up in progressive families, some worked their way through medical school. Some of the first black women physicians in the US graduated from this medical school in the late 1870s. There were international students who had come from abroad from places like India, and Japan and uh, Turkey, and they got their medical degree in Philadelphia. And went back to establish hospitals and clinic and practice medicine, you know, in their own home countries. And so it was this fascinating world, you know, many were wives and mothers. And so for me, it was nothing short of a revelation. Having been a medical student myself in Philly, and a doctor and just knowing nothing about this very rich history. Most of the research I did was through Drexel University in Philadelphia is like the repository. Uh, They have a legacy center archive and special collections. That's the repository for all the books and papers, photographs about all these just trailblazing women. And so Lydia is really drawn from so many of these real life stories.
0: As I'm reading your book, I am fascinated by the medical scenes that you describe so vividly. Uh, And some of them are, they're kind of gritty in a way that you think of medicine before you have a lot of the modern discoveries, you know. And so I'm wondering how you found the medical school that you researched and then describe in this book as opposed to what you did as as a medical student. I mean, it was so interesting. I mean,
2: so much of it is of what I had to do for this book was really think like a 19th century doctor. And of course, I have my own education, my own practice where, you know, this is modern medicine is saturated with technology. We have, you know, all the up-to-date imaging, x-ray imaging, CT, MRI, sophisticated, you know, laboratory testing to help us make diagnoses. And so to learn about this whole world of like 19th century medicine, what was forensic science like? Like very early, very rudimentary? What was it like to do dissection in the anatomy lab? A lot of it was really going back, reading old textbooks, medical journals, looking at photographs. You know, so much of the research was just looking at photographs and just being inspired by just a single photograph and there's one where four women are you know in the anatomy lab and are standing around uh, you know a table and there's the cadaver laid out and they're getting ready to work and here they are in their long Victorian dresses <laughs> you know with like a frilly apron and <laughs> you know you're just thinking there was something so wonderfully subversive but really inspiring about that because you know as a medical student of course it's a rite of passage I remember vividly you know and Anatomy lab, you walk into that classroom and, you know, you see the cadavers laid out and it's a very sterile environment. You're wearing your green scrubs, you know, the smell of formaldehyde is permeating everything. And so to really think back about, you know, how they would have done dissection in those days, because it's very physical work. It's very messy. It's very, as you say, gritty and dirty. And uh, so I think it, it was just so marvelous to, to see, you know, on so many levels, how they were defying society's expectations. And, and that was just another way. It's just, you know, the, the practice of medicine and what it takes. And so for me as a modern day doctor, you know, knowing the dedication it takes to study medicine, to really even embark on that career, how you're, you know, balancing the personal and professional constantly. It was very interesting to, to draw that parallel between my experience and theirs.
1: Well, I, I want to ask, was it, difficult for you as you were doing your research, because you are a modern doctor? And Lydia, you know, she's underestimated by some of the detectives because she's a woman. They don't take her seriously. They think she's butting her nose into things that she shouldn't be butting her nose into. Was that difficult to kind of write about because you're coming at it from a time when women do have more power and, and more experience and they're treated differently? Or did it frustrate you because you were like, well, maybe women aren't treated as well now as we like to think we are. Did, Did you struggle with that in any way?
2: That's a very interesting question. I mean, I chose this particular uh, year, 1875, for very much this reason, because it was a time where the medical school was really at a robust operations, right? Women students, women faculty, you know, they had just set up this brand new campus in Philadelphia at North 22nd and College. There was a a hospital attached to a clinic, attached to like a new medical school building with anatomy labs. So there's this very supportive environment for them to work, but you know, you can't exist in isolation, of course. And so their interaction kind of with the outside world, how to get a job after graduation, how to do residency training. I mean, that was pretty much closed off. You know, many of these women doctors had to travel abroad to Europe to do what we call, you know, postgraduate training, or they were barred from medical societies. That's an important place to present work. And so that tension between what's happening at the medical school where they're very supported, and then, you know, the outside world was really interesting to write about. And quite frankly, I mean, there were times I would, certainly, you know, I would read maybe a fragment of a diary or, you know, just a passage and think, you know what, this feels very modern and relevant mm-hmm. what they're saying. Like, this is a conversation a friend and I could have had last week. You know, as, as I mentioned, like this, this need to balance the personal and professional, feeling valued and respected for your life's work. I mean, these are timeless things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of things about the culture of medicine That still need to change. I mean, we're at a time, I think I read recently that, you know, 50%, even maybe a little more of medical students in the US are women. And, you know, there's no question or debate what women doctors have achieved. I mean, they're the pinnacle of every specialty, you know, lead academic research institutions, Nobel laureates, you name it. But at the same time, there are these aspects of the culture of medicine. There's a scene that I write in the book where Lydia is, you know, in the hospital with her student, and she's presenting a patient. And this male doctor comes up to her and truly is just berating her and goading her. And, you know, the the level of discomfort I felt when writing that scene, I mean, Unfortunately, it felt familiar to me from Mm. because I had experienced that in training. So I think there are, you know, many ways we can look back and say, Oh, my goodness, yes, look at how far, you know, things have come, but at the same time, and then, you know, certainly questions like equity. what what does that mean? You know, pay equity, you know, leadership opportunities, um, professional development, coming back after a maternity leave, for example, and having the same opportunities as your colleagues. So all of those questions, I think, still remain.
0: So I'm wondering, I mean, obviously, you have a scientific mind, because you've gone into medicine. At what point did you decide that you wanted to write? What was the impetus to writing this?
2: I think I've just been a huge and avid reader of mystery and crime fiction for as long as I can remember. I love this genre so much, and I've read like the depth and breadth of, you know, from the moment in seventh grade at my middle school library, I discovered a shelf of Agatha Christie paperbacks. I still can see the cover of And Then There Were None. That was the first one I ever read. I just love everything about a detective story. I find it deeply appealing, you know, this unique character who is our investigator. who's our guide and interpreter to some horrific event and, you know, just how resolution comes from the chaos of this event and just the very creative ways that writers work within the genre. And so I knew because I loved reading them so much that I always wanted to try and write one. And I, I do express myself best, I think through words and always have, but it was really, it took me a long time to actually say, I'm going to try, I'm going to sit down and write this novel.
0: How long did it take you considering that you're working as a full-time physician?
2: I would say from first idea to where we are now, it was probably about six years. I was really getting up early in the morning to write before work. I was, you know, working late at night uh, after my kids were asleep. And I know that sounds like a god-awful schedule, (laughs) Yeah, like, why would someone want to do that? But, you know, honestly, it was something that it was this wonderful creative space for me. It was just a time when I could really let my imagination run free. I was free of most of my responsibilities. The house was quiet. I had this wonderful routine. I would sit at the same place at the kitchen table with my cup of tea and I would work and it never felt like, you know, an obligation or this is one more thing, you know, I have to do Tick off my to do list. It was was actually a wonderful, expansive space for me. And that's not to say it wasn't difficult. Uh, You know, that's not to say I sat down and, you know, 80,000 word novel just comes out. Uh, You know, there were many days it felt very frustrating and, you know, overwhelming. But, you know, what ended up happening is the more that I could keep the consistency of that routine, the more the creative momentum flowed. So even on the hard days when it was, nothing's coming out, page is blank, I would try and do like a read a little research, or I would, you know, read a few lines of poetry or do something just to keep to keep going.
1: What were the challenges? Because I know I could not write a novel, I I can do nonfiction, I, I, I have a terrible imagination. But I'm wondering, even though you you love the genre, did you ever feel like stuck or you you thought you knew who was going to do it, but then you were like, that's not going to work. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, did you face any of those challenges? And if so, what were they?
2: Oh, of course. Yes, many times. Doing the research felt like a very natural extension of what I already love to do, which is to immerse myself deeply in a subject and just read. I do that as a reader. And, you know, as a medical student and a physician, I was just used to sitting for long hours and really reading hundreds of pages. And so that felt very natural and very fun in a way. And, you know, the writing was, too, at at certain points. But yes, there were frustrating moments. And, you know, I think the most, challenging part is as you say, it's it's one thing to love to read mysteries, but you know, the level of detail and precision that goes into really plotting one is quite intense. And so I felt like I had a very clear sense of the beginning and then the ending. And so constructing the narrative in between layering in the red herrings, revealing those things at just the right point to build up tension and things like that. That was really the most challenging part. That took a lot of work, t- took a lot of trial and error, a lot of back and forth, and you know, a lot of stops and starts. I think, you know, certainly the ending. The final draft, and you know what what you see in the book, um, that comes after many, many revisions, um, particularly of the mystery, because it does have to be you know really tautly plotted, and I feel very strongly about this. all the clues have to be there in the book for the reader, so that if you know if someone is really like, "Oh, you know it was all right there I'm, I'm definitely the kind of reader." Of of mysteries that I sort of breathlessly get to the end and then I go back. (laughs) I love to look for like the little details to make sure the author, you know, fair play and all, you know, it's got to be there. So constructing the narrative and really sustaining the arc of it to really maintain the pacing, because I think pacing is just so critical
0: for any novel, but particularly a mystery. Are you one of those people who always figures it out before the end of a mystery?
2: Never. <laughs>
0: okay. I always think, I really always think I do and then I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> yes. I I don't either, but you know, there's some people in our book club who say, "Yeah, I always figure it out before the end." And I I like the people, but I always find that a little bit irritating because I'm like, "How can you always figure it out before the end? I think you're lying." <laughs> So I'm glad that <laughs> even somebody who reads a lot of them doesn't figure it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> so another thing about your book is that you weave poetry into the story because the, the woman who disappears, her patient, has a diary where she writes passages of poetry in there. And it's kind of like, um, those are they're clues, basically. So why did you want to incorporate poetry in that way into her story? I really do love to read poetry myself and
2: not in any organized way. But I have a lot of anthologies of poetry like Oxford Book of English Verse and Book of American Poetry. And it's always just a fun thing for me. I love to read like a few poems here and there. And, you know, I really needed, as you mentioned, you know, I needed a way to reflect that young woman's voice. You know, Lydia and Anna, the young woman, are so connected. Lydia sees so much of herself in this young woman and is trying to help her further her education, is loaning her volumes of her own books. And so, you know, as we know, Anna, and not to give away a spoiler or anything, but Anna, you know, we don't see her after, you know, the very first part of the book. So there had to be uh, a way that we hear her voice. And I thought it would be just such a fun puzzle for me as a writer too, to just put this together little fragments of poetry. I thought like, could we hear her voice through letters? Could we hear it through, you know, a a diary where she's actually writing her thoughts. But then I thought, you know, after reading a lot, looking through some of my poetry books, this would be just a really fun little puzzle to put
1: together for myself and for the reader. I hope Lydia does have a close relationship with Anna, the one the young woman who disappears. And Lydia kind of shepherds her, she's a mentor, she wants to help the other women who are interested in medicine, pursuing their degrees. And she thinks a lot about her interactions with her patients. So I'm wondering, did writing this mystery change your medical practice at all or make you think differently about the care that you give on a day-to-day basis as as a physician?
2: What I think in this book is how much the doctor-patient relationship is at the heart of the story. You know, someone asked me once, oh, are, you know, are any real life patients, <laughs> you know, in the book? And, you know, I didn't use anything like that for my practice, you know, any like real life stories or anything like that. But, you know, I thought so much about that very it's almost intimate doctor patient relationship, you know, that trust between the doctor and patient. Anna is revealing a lot of things to Lydia that no one else knows. And Lydia knows many things about this young woman that perhaps not even her closest family members know. And so this kind of sacrosanct trust inherent in that relationship is very central to the book, because it's what enables Lydia to really see and observe and piece together the puzzle. But I really think that that's probably the thing I draw on most from being a physician, certainly like all the you know, the things like the physical exam, what it feels like to examine a patient, what it you know, what it sounds like when you put the stethoscope to the chest, or, you know, in the anatomy lab, the feel of using a scalpel to make an incision, that certainly I could write to very easily. But as far as, you know, just what I think is probably the biggest contribution is really how important that doctor patient relationship can be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that a character who's working on a mystery that is a physician is a u- unique lens for a mystery. And I had never really thought about it that people tell their doctors things that they don't tell other people because there is that doctor patient confidentiality and they would have insights that other people would not. Are there are there other things that you think that being a physician gives a unique lens to writing or to the view of the world? Well, one of the
2: things I've thought about a lot, and certainly first off, I should say, I could not write a medical mystery without paying homage to the original you know doctor mystery writer arthur conan doyle mm, and right. you know, love the Sherlock Holmes stories. And one of the things that I love is that Sherlock Holmes, one of the inspirations for Sherlock Holmes was uh, Conan Doyle's medical school professor, Dr. Joseph Bell at Edinburgh. And apparently Dr. Bell was famous for his keen observation. And there's a point in one of the stories, you know, the Holmes stories where Holmes tells Dr. Watson, you see, but you don't observe. And that I think is really the hallmark of Lydia's skill as an investigator. Everyone can sort of see the same things, but it's how she takes these observations, these little details that she sees, and pieces together or synthesizes uh, the information. And then I also thought about how much medicine is its own language. It's something that can so quickly you know, devolve into like dry, dull, technical, boring language. And I think I drew a lot of influence from my favorite doctor writers like Oliver Sacks and Abraham Verghese, which is you distill the language of medicine into something that is fascinating, but understandable. And, you know, you take these terms, or you take this world, or you take these situations, and you have to make it really vivid, you know, for the reader to really understand and feel and to empathize, you know, with the characters. And so I definitely, those few influences were, were huge
0: in the writing of the book. Besides Agatha Christie, who are some of your favorite mystery writers or series that you really enjoy? Oh,
2: yes. Well, I'm a huge fan of Jacqueline Winspear's Maisie Dobbs, uh, Charles mm-hmm. Todd, The Inspector Rutledge series, you know, aside from Agatha Christie, you know, P.D. James. Ruth Rendell and then the novel she wrote as Barbara Vine are some of my absolute favorites, you know, kind of the psychological thriller aspect of those Barbara vine novels are incredible. I do love scan the Scandinavian writers. I first discovered that Henning Mankell, Kurt Wallander mysteries mm. many years ago. And I just
1: read one of his, I listened to it as an audio book and I was I like, Oh, this is really good.
2: They are incredible. And I think, you know, one of the things that besides like stories about women protagonists, I love women detectives who are unconventional independent in the Henning Mankell Wallander series. There is something about, you know, when the landscape is like a character. Mm -hmm. And I think the, you know, if the stark beauty of that landscape, the desolation of it kind of mirrors that character of Wallander. And I just absolutely love that. I recently read, it's not new to anybody else, but new to me. I just read Jane Harper's The Dry. Yes,
0: yes. That
2: was, I felt like, you know, when I read that, I thought I was really thinking about Henning Mankell because that same thing, you know, the town in, um, I guess Western Australia and the drought, and you know, just the whole impact of that really evocative setting, kind of on the characters. It, it really reminded me of that. So those are those are some of my favorites. And that's the Jane Harper book was one I recently read and really enjoyed. Is there a niche topic that you love to read about? I know this is going to seem funny. I love to read presidential biographies, <laughs>
0: <laughs> like the thousand-page biographies. So I.
2: I'm a huge fan of David McCullough, uh, the historian, um, and I just, I love Truman. That's a fantastic book uh, that's probably one of my favorites and then Ron Cherno's grant I read that a few years ago David Herbert Donald's Lincoln and I just I love it I do read a lot of history and I love history obviously I you know wrote this historical mystery but I just love delving into you know someone's life story and all the twists and turns and you know the perspective from the history at that time there's almost and certainly with David McCullough and both all of those books I mentioned there's almost like a novelistic uh, narrative to it. You know, it feels like you're reading a novel when in fact it's history. But I do love presidential biographies. It, it's how you treat the subject matter. You know, mm. it really is. You can draw a reader in with interest about
0: anything. So one last question. Do you see Lydia Weston having another mystery, having another book? It seems like she yeah. could lend herself to helping these detectives. Yes, they need the help, don't they?
2: Certainly. They need the help. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I'm actually working on the second novel in the series. And it's set uh, a year after this one in 1876 at the World's Fair, the centennial exposition that was held in Philadelphia. And, you know, women were having the opportunity to present at something called the Woman's Pavilion. And that was a place for women engineers and scientists and artists to present their work. And the women of the Women's Medical College actually put up exhibits. And so they were actually, you know, there in real life. And so what's going to happen is the main character will be this brilliant woman surgeon who is doing a surgical demonstration and something goes awry while the patient is under anesthesia. And Mm -hmm. there's a mystery there. So that's that. But it will be the same set of characters with uh, Lydia and her friends and the police. That sounds very,
1: awesome. good. very good. Well, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to be sharing what we're reading.
0: We are back with Ritu Mukherjee, the author of Murder by Degrees, a historical mystery novel set in 1870s Philadelphia with a female physician. And I'm also here with Carrie, of course, and we want to talk about what we're reading. So, Carrie, what's uh, going on on your nightstand?
1: Well, I just finished this audiobook not too long ago. I picked it because it was eight hours in length. So it, was, it wasn't a huge time commitment. I knew nothing about the book otherwise. But it turned out to be a super timely read. I read Mother of Strangers by Swad Amiri. And this story is about two Palestinian teenagers, Supi, who is almost 16, and he's a mechanic, and Shems, who's the 13-year-old girl that he loves. Now, this novel is set in Jaffa, Palestine, between 1947 and 1951. And while it is fictional, it is based on a true story reading the book and and the situation that's happening now in Israel made me do a lot of Googling about partition. I had had a similar experience reading The Night Diary by Vera Hiranadani, who wrote about India's partition. And so, you know, with everything that's going on on in the news, you know, I'm one of those people who sometimes I think I know the historical reasonings, but don't always. So it was very timely. It allowed me to look up things and look up maps, which was also helpful since I'm teaching geography this semester. So in Mother of Strangers, Subhi does work for a rich man who buys him an English suit as part of his payment. And Subhi loves his, this suit and he hopes to wear it for his wedding to Shems in a couple of years. As you can imagine, though, his suit very quickly becomes unimportant because partition forces both families, Subhi's family and Shems's family, to flee. There's lots of people who are killed as a result of the upheaval. I think fictional stories can be a really great way to learn about historical situations that you may not be willing to do research on yourself, but sometimes a novel can give you that opening that you need to further explore. And so this novel was was that one for me. And it's called Mother of Strangers by Swad Amiri. And she is a writer and an architect. So I learned a little bit about her as well. So I recommend it.
0: Oh, that's a that's a that's good great. recommendation. Because yeah. I do feel like sometimes it's easier to take in information like that in a, like it sticks with you better. And, you, yes. and you, you know, the empathy right. in, that you feel when you read
1: books, I think is important. Right. Very good. Right. So Ritu, what have you been reading lately? So I have just
2: finished The Mistress of Bhatia House by Sujatha Massey. And she writes historical mysteries. And The Mistress of Bhatia House is the fourth novel in this series. And it features a protagonist named Perveen Mistry. She is a lawyer, an Oxford educated lawyer in 1920s Bombay. And she is part of, of the Parsi community, which, uh, you know, this community is a small community in India that emigrated from Persia, and the Zoroastrian religion. So there's just some very interesting information about language and customs. And so it's this very interesting kind of perspective and look at this community within the larger context of what was happening in India at that time, the 1920s and the British Raj. And so she was certainly another compelling heroine that I felt was very much like mine, Dr. Lydia Weston, you know, a young woman really making her way in a totally male dominated field and the battles and the obstacles that she has to overcome. In this particular novel, she is investigating you know, a series of crimes at a maternity hospital at a women's hospital. And so what I really love about her books is that she's always drawing in themes of, you know, just social aspects of, you know, women's rights and what was happening at a certain time. And so it always feels very modern and relevant, even though it's, you know, set in this historical time period. And then also how she brings in wonderful descriptions of the food and culture, the life uh, of this young woman. So it's a great read, and I would highly recommend it. So it's called The Mistress of Bhatia, B-H-A-T-I-A, Bhatia House by
1: Sujatha Massey. I'm looking it up now. Okay. All right. Okay. I've got it. See, I've got to do important stuff. I'm I'm multitasking. We're interviewing and I'm adding to my TBR. That's that's what I got to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Amy, so I think I'm still technically beating you on books that we've read for the year. I think I'm about Eight ahead of you. Yeah. Okay. We don't need to talk about that. Oh, oh, we're okay. Well, I was just going to ask, what was one hundred one? What? No. You're you're really trying to kid me here. That's not what I'm going to talk
0: about. Okay. Oh. Okay. Okay. I'm going to talk about a memoir today. It uh, came out earlier this year. It's called George, a Magpie Memoir by Frida Hughes. This is a memoir for people who like memoirs by poets. It's also a memoir for readers who like books about animals. This is the story of Frida Hughes, who is a poet and an artist who also happens to be the daughter of Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. So this book uh, happens to follow a very short period in her life, about 10 months, a time when she was on her third marriage, which was somewhat precarious, and she is trying to to refurbish an old Georgian manor in rural Wales. So Frida is an avid gardener and she's working outside uh, extensively to try to bring back the glory of the English gardens that are surrounding the house. And one day she sees a couple of magpies with the nest in the trees above. And then there is a big storm. And then the next day, all of these eggs have fallen to the ground And the baby birds die all but one, a little one, who she takes in and she calls George. And so this is the story of her sort of hand raising George. Magpies are a bird that are Most people consider a nuisance. Uh, They're often shot by humans, um, but they're also extremely intelligent. They're part of the Corvid family. And so that includes things like ravens, crows. Some people may associate them where they steal little items and they hide them. They like really shiny things. But Frida takes in this little bird and she helps it survive. She keeps George in this little cage in her kitchen, and she falls in love with George completely. So much of this book uh, comes from her diary entries that she wrote during that time, and George's antics as he grows from a baby who is completely reliant on her, and she's digging up worms to feed him every day, to when he becomes a juvenile bird with a... You know, a juvenile attitude until eventually he wants to be free. And she is struggling with the idea of letting him go because can he survive on his own? He, he's been raised by a human and was probably a little too familiar with humans. You know, she loves him and she loves the companionship that she feels with George that she's not really getting from her ever increasing unhappiness with her husband. So books about human-animal relationships are sort of a sweet spot for me. Uh, And so this book really fit the bill for me. The writing is lovely, which one would expect from a poet, but it's also quirky. It's kind of whimsical. Frida is tolerant of the antics of George that I admit, even as an animal lover, that I would have a hard time with, like... George is, like, tearing up her kitchen. He's There's constant bird poo in the kitchen, no less, that mm. she's having to clean up. <laughs> uh, but she, nope. he is clever. He has an intelligence that one wouldn't necessarily think of a bird having. I guess I didn't realize how intelligent these types of, of birds were. But it turns out that even when George is out of the picture, it has sparked a love of intelligent birds like corvids and raptors for her. So she she had built an aviary for George and then later she uses it, she adopts an owl, she has some ducks and she divorces that husband. These birds I feel like are smarter than her husband and I really liked it. I listened to the audiobook version of it. She narrates it and she her voice has this great lyrical timber about it that's just really fun to listen to. Again okay, the name of it is George a magpie memoir by Frida Hughes.
1: So did you know when you picked it that she was the daughter of... No, Sophia I had no Plath? idea. Huh. I
0: was. I, ha- I had to take a trip and I was just looking for an audiobook to listen to. The cover of it kind of attracted me. It had a bird on it. I'm like, a magpie memoir? What's this about? And it wasn't until... Well, I think maybe in the introduction, she says that, you know, that her parents were Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. And then I thought, mm. well, that's kind of interesting. And, and in this memoir, she has some like chronic illnesses, like um, chronic fatigue syndrome and some things like that. And she sort of makes the connection herself that she thinks that some of her physical ailments that she has correspond with stresses and things that have happened in her life. And Mm. I thought that was kind of interesting. I really don't know that much about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. I know that they're a very famous literary couple. I don't think I've read anything by either one of them, to be quite honest. So no, I did not know that, nor did I have necessarily an interest in that. But I did find this memoir very fascinating.
1: Well, see, I've read biographies of them. And because if somebody's interested in poets and their complicated nutso marriages, Pick up a book about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes.
0: At the beginning of the memoir, she talks about, like, she was three years old when her mother committed suicide. They moved all the time.
1: So I'll just say his mistress got pregnant with their daughter. And after Sylvia Plath committed suicide, his mistress about four years later, five years later, committed suicide and killed their daughter. So, oh my gosh! Yeah, it was just like if you have any interest in that, it's fascinating. I mean, it's terrible, but it's it's fascinating. So, anyway, I had to I had to put a plug in for that when I heard that it's about that the author was free to use.
2: When you were in describing that, it reminded me of that wonderful memoir. H is for Hawk. Yes, just like that. You know, kind of the relationship between uh, this you know young woman
0: and and the bird. Absolutely. After I read it and I was reading some reviews on it from Goodreads, apparently there are people who this is a niche topic that they like to to read about are people with relationships with birds, which yes. I had never thought of. I mean, <laughs> I guess you can have a relationship with any kind of animal. And that was one of the things that I did like about it because I'm a dog and cat person. Yes. So I think it's interesting when somebody develops a, a relationship with another type of a wild animal. Fascinating. So,
1: okay. Well, very good. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to subject <laughs> Read Two to the Fast and the Furious.
0: <laughs> but before that, we'll have one more book recommendation a five star read from a fellow book lover. Hi, everyone. This is Amy R. from Texas. My last five star read was Mercury by Amy Jo Burns. I loved this book so much. The storytelling was exceptional. It's beautifully written, and the author has a very unique writing style. This is a raw family drama, full of secrets, and some of those secrets threaten to completely unravel this family. There's also incredibly well-developed characters, and we get to know them bit by bit. Their hopes, their regrets, their motivations. By the end, these characters had become real people to me, and I felt like I knew them. This one stuck with me for quite a while afterward and gave me a huge book hangover. I highly recommend it. I hope you'll look me up over on Instagram. My handle is readthisandsteep, and and I love to connect with other bookworms.
1: We are back with Ritu Mukherjee, the author of Murder by Degrees. Uh, Ritu, are you ready for your Fast and Furious questions?
2: Yes, I am.
1: Okay, well, be prepared. They might be furious, but they won't be fast because Amy always (laughs) asks additional questions.
0: Okay, you have talked about how much you love history and especially those big presidential biographies. So what was your favorite historical topic that you studied while getting your bachelor's?
2: I would say it was the Civil War and Reconstruction. I was a student at uh, Columbia, and I was a history major as an undergraduate, and I was able to take, you know, a couple of phenomenal classes on the Civil War and Reconstruction while I was there. And I became very interested in this time period. This was another reason I set the book in 1875, because of what had changed so much in American medicine after the Civil War. So things like the use of ambulances, the architecture of hospitals, where you would have separate wards for separate diseases. So for example, people with malaria would be in one ward, people with typhoid fever would be within another, and just all the advances in surgical techniques and surgical triage on the battlefield. So I found this time period just after the Civil War. And, you know, in medicine to be very interesting, it was really one of the reasons that I wanted to write about it. And this book set at this particular time.
1: All right, medical field that came in second place to being an internist
2: cardiology, you know, I I did three years of residency training in internal medicine. And then to be a cardiologist, I would have had to do three more years of fellowship training. I just find the heart uh, to just be such an intricate and Incredible physiologic system. Again, so fascinating to study how it's so interconnected to all the other systems in the body. It's a very elegant system that we don't really think about that much. You know, it's something that works so seamlessly every single day of our lives. You know, you think about your heart is beating constantly without even thinking about it.
0: Okay top underrated thing that you would tell people to see if they visited Marin County, California, because that is where you live. Yes. So I would suggest a place called Roy's Redwood.
2: So Roy, like you know, the man's name, Roy's Redwoods. It is a beautiful redwood grove in a town called Woodacre, which is on the way to the Point Reyes National Seashore. And the reason I chose that is because, you know, here in this area, everyone is very familiar or comes to visit Muir Woods, which is absolutely stunning. Uh, You know, a national park, the majestic like coastal redwoods that you can see there are absolutely worth seeing. But what I really love about Roy's Redwoods is it's very small, it's off the beaten path, and you still have that same opportunity with fewer crowds to walk Mm -hmm. through climb on these old redwood trees, you know, really explore like different redwood groves. I have three children and they literally grew up going there, you know, playing and exploring in these huge old majestic trees. And it's a very peaceful spot, you know, meditative spot. You can picnic there. I would highly recommend anyone visiting.
1: I love a tip that gets me away from crowds. So I totally love that. If I ever head out that way, I am going to go based on your recommendation, because if we're going to go travel someplace, my search uh, bar is things like, where are there not a lot of people in Las Vegas? Where, you know, like wherever (laughs) I'm going, where's the least crowdy, least touristy, you know, sometimes it can be hard to find. So I love that, that you suggested it. All right. Last question. So this we're recording this in October, but it will air in Thanksgiving, which is when everybody is thinking about Thanksgiving food. So do you have a favorite food that you either eat or fix for Thanksgiving?
2: Yes. So I make a cranberry salsa.
1: Mm-hmm. It is
2: a from a recipe from the San Francisco Chronicle from at least 30 plus years ago and has had a spot at our Thanksgiving table like I can remember my mom making this and it's absolutely delicious and It's kind of a fresh take on, you know, cranberry sauce. So you basically put the cranberries through a food processor or blender. And then it's a mixture of jalapeno, uh, cilantro, a little bit of ginger, orange, like chopped up orange, and a little onion, olive oil, salt. It's absolutely delicious. And then it's kind of like this nice fresh tasting dish with all the buttery deliciousness that's going on with all the other Thanksgiving food. Um, but it's something we've had almost every year for as long as I can remember. And it's quite good. You know, it's one of those like fraying, you know, faded
0: newspaper. Yes. articles. <laughs> but I, I probably should laminate so it doesn't like disintegrate. But so do you serve it like alongside turkey? Or you actually like mm-hmm. eat it with chips? Or how, how, do, you, well, how yeah, do you serve so you it? Eat- Exactly. So turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes,
2: gravy, and yeah. then you just put this next to it, and it it's it's almost like a relish or a little.
0: It's, so, it's delicious. Yeah, right. That almost sounds like a chutney with the ginger in it and everything. Yep, it yeah. is. It's, yeah.
1: it's,
2: it's definitely a little bit moist, but it's it's it just has a really nice
0: texture. Mm, hmm. Very good.
1: Like mm. I don't get excited about recipes ever, but that one kind of got me a little excited. So I <laughs> I would like <laughs> that recipe. <laughs>
2: I will. I will absolutely send that along to you. Okay. Too. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> and you have to tell me. Tell me what you think.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ritu, it has been so great chatting with you. We're so excited. I can't wait to pass your book on to my mom because she loves mysteries, and so I think she'll really like this. Again, we've just been chatting with Ritu Mukherjee, the author of Murder by Degrees. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a great conversation. You can find Ritu on the socials at Ritu Mukherjee and at her website, ritumukherjee.com. And I will spell those for you, R-I-T-U-M-U-K-E-R-J-I.
0: For show notes for any episode, go to our website at PerksOfBeingABookLover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at PerksOfBeingABookLover. If you want to send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button.
1: And be sure, you know... Click that contact button because Amy loves to make friends. So she does want to hear from you and tell her when you've gone onto your favorite podcast platform and given us five stars and please, you know, tell your friends. Amy wants more and more and more friends. She just can't get enough. It's like an addiction. (laughs) It's like dogs for Amy. She will love to hear from you. She'll contact you back. I will not, but I'll appreciate any podcast love you send our way. (laughs)
0: Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.